Oh, yeah, let's move this instead of me, I guess. I just moved the computer. I think we are live now. Yes, yeah. we are live. So, okay. okay, go ahead and thank you. Hello, everybody. I am Catherine, host of the podcast, Your Positive Imprint, the variety show featuring people all over the world whose positive achievements inspire positive thought and action. Exceptional people rising to the challenge. Your Positive Imprint, what's your PI? Welcome, everybody. It is my first live show. It's a debut, I guess you can call it, and I'm very excited. And But before I introduce my amazing guest, whom you're here to meet, I want to introduce my co-host. <laughs> That's me. <laughs> yes, Brad Cedillo. And he's not new to listening or loving podcasts, including loving your positive imprint, but he is new to co-hosting. Yes, and I'm super excited to be here and meet these amazing women and hear about all of their incredible stories. Yes, absolutely. And and so Brad's going to be running the tech today, including your questions, as well as some of his own. So now it is, it has been International Women's Day this month. And I'm so thrilled to have two female athletes from two different generations Mary Shields is famous for her being the first woman to complete the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race, coming in 22nd out of 49 <laughs> with just two women in that race. And Mary, along with many other female athletes, opened the door, inspiring females worldwide to enter and participate and play in male-dominated sports. Yay! Now that... Uh, also includes being inspired by my second guest, Kina Linus Skor of Norway. <laughs> Thank you for the wave. Kina is a musher as well and a racer, and, and she's in Norway. And thank you for staying up late, Kina, for uh, doing this. But Kina had dreams, and those dreams were to train working dogs. And the train, the... Um, she wanted to train them not just to do the sleds, but she wanted to train for the Iditarod for the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race, and uh, as well as teams in Norway, of course. Both women are huge advocates for humane animal training. So now, before I get started and have them come on, I have two questions that I want to ask you. So the first question is, do we have any women mushers out there? And if we do, if you could just type in your location in the chat box. And second question, do we have any women who train working dogs or working animals? And if you do, type in what job that dog does or that animal does. And guys, <laughs> don't worry, you get a fair shake at this as well. So are there any men? Who are mushers and if you are a musher please type in your location and second question of course if any of you men train dogs or other animals to be working animals and if you do if you could write in what their job is and brad will be taking care of that while we go to our guests <laughs> so welcome mary over there in alaska hello thank you thank you for having me oh mary it's so exciting to be able to have you live. People know you. Kina has followed you for, for quite a long time. And so thank you so much for being here, Mary. My pleasure. Yeah. And Kina. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> yes. Thank you. And, and it's such a joy to have you here also because I remember, I think, well, it wasn't 2020. I Was it 2019? It was 2020, right before everything went ballistic around the world, you had sent me a uh, email saying, I'm over here in Norway doing races, and they have Mary Shields <laughs> up on the billboard. And that was just so exciting. So I had to contact Mary. So, all right, Kina, welcome from yeah. Norway. Thank you so much. Uh, so the way we're going to work the show today is we want you to participate 
And so my camera's up here, but I, I want to also see Mary and Keena and Brad, so you'll probably see my eyes shift around. Yes, I'm very shifty. So, uh, but we want to learn so much more about the two women, and we have questions. So, Brad, first of all, do we have any mushers out there? So, we haven't had any mushers identify themselves yet, but we have quite a few people who are fans and would like to ask questions for sure. So we can start with a question from Chris for Mary. Uh, Mary, how do you train for the mental aspect of the Iditarod, given that it's such a grueling race? Well, that was the first race I'd ever been on. So I didn't know how grueling it was. Yeah. <laughs> so I didn't train for that part. I'd been going on camping trips with my dogs, and I loved being out in the, on the country with the dogs. So I just kind of treated it like a camping trip. And then once I got out on the race, which I completely denied that I was competitive. I was just going for the fun of it. Then throughout the race, Lolly, the other woman, and I became more competitive between the two of us because we had very different ways of training dogs. And I think we both wanted to prove our way was the best way. Lolly had sprint dogs and she'd push them real hard and then they'd be really tired and they'd go slower. I had freight dogs, which went slower all the time, but had a consistent pace and it seemed it was easier on the dogs that way today it's a whole different thing because speed is the whole thing what that people are trying to to better all the time and we had other goals back in 1974 so what types of goals so you you talk about you know they're trying to get speedier but how are the goals you know what were the how are the goals different well when i went i thought it would be incredible if i made it all the way to Nome a thousand miles because I had eight dogs in my team. Um, it was the smallest team in the race. One other person had eight. Most people had 14, but I only owned six dogs when I signed up and I had to buy two dogs from another musher a couple of weeks before the race. Oh so my I gosh. So I was just excited that I got there and I was in one piece and I had had just a wonderful adventure. And then I mushed halfway back once I got to Nome because the snow was melting back in Fairbanks, and I didn't want to come back where the snow was all melting. So we had a little extra 500 miles that we got to play around with. So through um, the time, and this is what's what's kind of cool is today is my debut for my first live show ever. And you, Mary, were my first guest on the show when I started this podcast in 2019. And that's actually how I met Kina. Because Kina listened to that and she absolutely loved your story and the storytelling. It wasn't, it wasn't because it was the first, just the first woman. It was the whole entire package. It was your storytelling. It was the fact that you are the first woman to complete the Iditarod trail sled dog race. And she is a woman and, and you know, your field in, including the dog training is not the easiest field for women when you're working with a male dominated um, event, or maybe it's not anymore. How many women were in the race this year, Mary? Do you know? Or I Kina, one of you? About a third of them are women now. And I didn't think it was hard back then either because I wasn't thinking competitive. But I remember pulling into Shack Tulik and the mushers that were going to take an overnight there packed up and left. And the checker said, well, that's funny. They were going to stay here overnight. And I think I was pushing them ahead of me because they didn't want to be seen traveling as slow as I was traveling. But I didn't take it personally. I knew I didn't have a race team. And I knew I was just doing, just going to have a good time. And, I, and I'm not a competitive racer. I, I have dogs because I love being out there and I love traveling by dog team. So I and hope I don't disappoint you, Keenan. I actually, I'm afraid that the racing is getting way too commercial and there's too much money involved and a normal person can't afford to do that anymore. I mean... Um, can I just ask you a question? Uh, what do sure. you think is the biggest differences between mushing today and uh, like in 74, uh, uh, almost 50 years ago? What's, what is the bigger, biggest differences? I think the degree of commercialism in the race really destroys it for me. I mean, if you don't you have a good sponsorship, you're, 
you're going to use your family and all your friends' money. And if you don't win the race, you're going to be disappointed and they're going to be disappointed. And uh, dog mushing is a joyful thing that should be, you love every minute out there, not resent that you didn't win a race. To me, anyway, it's not important. But most people that race are serious about in their heart of hearts, they think they're going to win it and they're going to surprise everybody. But in fact, only one person wins and 50 others or however 70 or many they have are going to be kind of disappointed. And I, if you go on a camping trip, you have all the wonderful part of being out there, but none of the stress of having thousands of dog boots and lamb to feed your dogs. And I mean, there's people starving all over the world and we're feeding outrageous food to our sled dogs that don't need it, in my opinion. I hate to be a, a wet blanket on it all, but um, I think we need to look at our our morals a little bit more. And if we if there's money to be made, it should go to a charity or something, not to, to a musher that has five brand new trucks and a big sponsorship from some dog food company. That doesn't seem, I mean, it's nice for the person and I, and it's fun for the whole community watches the race in the middle of the winter. It's everyone looks forward to it. I, I agree with that. And people spend their whole winter training, which is a wonderful way to spend their winter, but most people can't afford to do that. They're, they're working all winter. So they already have some strikes against them. They can't afford to train the way professional racers do now. Well, Mary, that's part of your amazing and wonderful, inspiring, positive imprint is your perspective and the way that you do inspire others who come to you for your storytelling. And we have two different generations here. So we've got Kina in the generation where she is involved with, and I'll let you take it because you have worked in for an Iditarod sled and Iditarod, it's such a long name, the Iditarod Trail Sled Dog Race winner, Lars Monson, in in Norway. But your dream was the dogs. And I love that both of you are such advocates for the dogs and not the money and not the materialism, but the humane treatment of the dogs. And, and of course, Norway and Alaska are two places in the world where people use sled dogs to work. So, Kina, can you share, or will you please share, some of the uh, experiences in what it is like today training dogs? Because, of course, Mary's experience, and I'm going to ask her to share that in a moment, um, how she got started with her do her dog team. But, Kina, you want to share some? Yeah, uh, the one thing that I have learned uh, training dogs, like the last 15, 16 years, is that, uh, like Mary said, it's getting more commercial. Uh, you need a lot of money to uh, to compete in in all the races. And I've been training for the Aditeril race, uh, the Finnmarks race here in Norway, and also the Finnmarks, uh, the Femin race. Uh, so, uh, like Mary said, um, you need to have big sponsors to, to compete. And uh, if you have a work beside <laughs> the dog machine, it's uh, you work and then you mush. It's all. It's just all you do. So um, for me, it was a big dream to uh, to just go to Alaska and and see the Iditarod race. Uh, but now I've been for 15 years. I've been training for others. I only owned uh, two dogs myself, uh, the most. But now um, I don't have. I haven't been mushing for two years. And me and my boyfriend Espen. Uh, we are we are going to move now, and uh, we have bought a new house. So we want to to start our own kennel, but I want to go on camping with the dogs. Maybe uh, I want to have good dogs. I want to have dogs that can compete if we want and if uh, our economy allows us to do that. But uh, it's not the main goal. I want to be out uh, in the woods with my dogs. Uh, camping, with, um, see the northern lights with my dogs and just, uh, yeah, I can go out in my dog yard and have the dogs loose. And uh, when you don't need to think uh, kilometers or miles, 
because in March or in February you have to do this race. I just want to be uh, to live with the dogs and having fun. That's, That's and, the most important thing I learned so far. <laughs> and and you do share that on Kina has been on on the podcast as well, sharing her dream. But Mary, you were going to say something with regard to um, after what Kina was chatting about. It was just wonderful to hear what she said. My impression is that racers are in it so seriously, they sometimes lose the joy of it, but it sounds like she's kept the joy and that's most important. And um, camping is the best way you can prepare for that race anyway. And just get a routine that every night when you stop to make camp, you do things in the exact same way. You put everything back in your sled right where it was before. I can say this, but I don't always do it myself. But then you just, if you're in an emergency, it just comes natural to you. You don't have to think it all out as a new plan. And that'll serve you really well out on the trail because there will be things that surprise you and you'll be prepared for it. Yeah. I think the most most fun about uh, having a, a dog team is to raise the puppies. You exactly. take them out on uh, on adventures. You learn them how to cross the river. Uh, you build their their bodies and their heads mentally. So I think uh, to see uh, the puppies grown from like being eight weeks and uh, curious on the world to to put them in the harness and they just work for you because they trust you. Oh, it's and just talking about it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do tours in the summer and that's what I tell people the best part is having the puppies but I have a question for you which in your dogs which gender makes the best lead dogs the males or the females um, me, me personally I connect best with the males but I see that uh, when I was training for the Aditarod uh, the dogs that um, were standing out especially in storms or the females. Ah. Well, I always tell the people it's definitely the females because if you get lost, they'll ask for directions. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) I have a very weird, weird sense of humor. And if anyone gives me any, come on to one of the jokes I tell, I tell anyone I talk to on the phone, I like to tell a joke to because Everyone's so stressed out with everything now, and I understand why, but I like to spread jokes around. And you memorize them so well, because every time we've talked on the phone through the years, and we used to to work on lesson plans together with the schools, uh, it's just been so fun, Mary, to go through the years with you and, and the remarkable you. But Brad, I want to go over to you because I'm seeing a lot of questions coming through for these ladies. Yeah. So maybe we need to get going with 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 you, the audience, and and share some of these questions. So you did mention that training uh, of puppies is one of the greatest joys of getting a dog ready for mushing. So how long generally is the process of training a dog so that they're at the point where they're ready to be in a competitive race? And before they answer that. Um, Brad, if you want to just mention the first name, if there is a first Certainly. name. Yeah, there's several. We got questions from Chris and Marianne and Carol, all asking about sort of the long-term process oh, of good. training for a mushing race. You can go first, Keenan. Um, here in uh, what I've been uh, trained to is uh, from their puppies, you take them out on walks and then we put them in the harness when they are about six to eight months old and just uh, let them run like this 500 meters just so they get the feeling of the harness. Uh, and then you started training them in the team, maybe from one year old. And here in Norway, there are rules that the dogs have to be 18 months before participating in the race. Uh, so um, I like to um, run dogs that are 18 months. I don't like to run them more than like a 500, I, um, 150 kilometers race. But I think uh, when the dog is on their best in the peak, it's like five, five, six years old. And you have the, the yeah, the, the dogs are the be- on, on their best. So five, six years old. And then, uh, but uh, they can compete like from 18 months, but uh, you can really see 
uh, how a good lead dog is when they are like three, four years old, I think. I have a slightly different schedule than that. Mm -hmm. uh, Susan Butcher, who was a friend of mine, she said a dog learns half of everything they're going to learn in the first 12 months of their life. So I consider training starting the minute they come out of their mother and you hear this little, mm, 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 and I'll pick them up right in front of the mother so she knows I'm not taking the puppy away. I'll breathe on it. I'll talk to it. I'll hold it for a little while. And then I put the puppy right back in with the mother. And then every day I hold each puppy a little bit longer. I want them to learn to trust me. I'm not going to drop them. I'm not going to squish them. I want them to learn they're safe with me. And then when their eyes open about 13 days old, and they can really waddle around a little bit, then I'll take them for walks out in the woods. I'll take them on real narrow trails. I'll take them on trails full of puddles, give them some challenges so they have to, if they're going to keep up with me, they have to try some new things. And then as soon as we get back to the dog yard, I'll give them a little biscuit for a reward, and I put them back in the puppy pen. I train using positive reinforcement. When I first started out, way back then, people were doing more negative reinforcement by mean, meaning giving them spankings and things. And I don't want to do, treat my dogs that way. I want to just positively enforce them. And I must tell you a story. My friend Richard Barnes said uh, he lived out in Salta and at Christmas, they'd hire someone to dress up as Santa Claus and they'd put him on a sprint sled right downtown and he'd go out to the nearest mall, the only mall there was, and hand out gifts to the kids. And some of the sprint racers were still training using negative reinforcement and they'd, they'd make something they called a jingler, which was a lot of bare bottle caps on a ring of wire. And when you shook it, it made a, a jingle bell noise. And when they would spank the dog, they'd ring that noise at the same time. So in the future, the dog would just hear that noise and it would pull harder. Well, so Santa Claus is at the co-op drugstore drinking coffee and he doesn't want to come out in the cold and he drinks coffee and he drinks coffee. Meanwhile, the sprint team is leaping in the air. They have 10 people holding the sled back. And when Santa comes out, he has a wreath of jingle bells, real jingle bells, and he's ringing it and the dogs are just going crazy. <laughs> they put Santa on the sled and they don't stop at the mall. They go way past the mall. And they had to turn him around and bring him back to give the gifts to the kids. So, <laughs> but positive reinforcement, the dogs, we've been breeding for the instinct to pull sleds. These aren't just any old dogs. These are dogs that have been very selected over the years to have that desire to pull sleds. And they have the physical adaptations to be comfortable in the cold. If a dog's feet are hurting or they're, they're not comfortable, they're not going to do a good job for you. But if you're yeah. careful in the breeding program and get dogs that love to pull sleds, they, they want to do it for you and they'll imitate what the big dogs are doing. And they'll do everything yeah. the big dogs do. And then your whole team is working together. And it's just a joy. I start them when I take them for walks, when their eyes open up. And when they're about four months old, it's the end of this. Usually I have puppies. Well, I've only had six litters of puppies in my whole life, but I would have them in the spring. Then I'd socialize them all summer. And then in the fall, when we got our first snow, I'd let the puppies run loose behind the sled. And then when they got tired, they'd just sit down in the middle of the trail and take a nap. So I always had a cardboard box in the sled. I'd scoop up the puppies, put them in the sled and give them a ride home. And then one day I'd turn around and there aren't any puppies chasing the sled. They're up in front harassing the big dogs. And that's a signal that it's time to put them in the team. And I'd never put two puppies side by side. All they want to do is play. I'll put the puppy hmm. next to one of the older dogs. And the older dog, when that puppy starts initiating play, that older dog will just glare at him or growl a little bit. And the puppy will take yeah. the hint and they'll back off. And the dogs can teach that so much better than I can. We'll just go a mile or two the first day. Then every day I'll increase the distance a little bit as the dog's endurance builds up. And then when we come home, I'll get even on the trail, I might take 10 breaks on the trail and give every dog on the team a, a treat so they know for sure I'm happy with that behavior. But I don't want to have to give them treats all the time. But when they're learning, food is the best reinforcement I can do, <laughs> along with petting and good dog, good dog. You're the best, best dog I ever had. And we all love to love on our on our pets. And yeah. I know there's a lot more questions. So, yeah. Brad. I had a quick follow-up question for me personally. I wanted to know more about how you identify the lead dog as in at what point do you start 
seeing the dog's individual's personalities and sort of how you determine which dog belongs where on a team? Uh, for me, it's, it is the ones who you have a good contact with, the ones who who follow you with their eyes. They'll, you can see that they are listening to you, uh, even when you're not saying anything. So uh, uh, I used also, like Mary, to put a young dog next to an uh, to older dog, and then you can see which dog is more um, yeah, awake uh, to focus on you. So... Um, for me, it's that and the ones that you get a good contact with. So I, uh, when I was um, mushing uh, the famine race, uh, I had eight lead dogs in my team and there were eight uh, dogs in the team. So I like to train everyone in each position, but uh, you can see during the training who stands out to be to be a lead dog. I think it's okay. just something you, you know and you learn to, to see. Sure. Pretty much the same for me. The first dog that comes when I call him, he learns his name, and he knows I want him to come. That's, that's a real good sign. Oh, okay. And I, I switch them around. Every time I harness them up, I put the dogs in different places. I want them to learn the responsibilities of all the parts in the team, not just the wheel dog or the lead dog, because you never know when your lead dog might go lame and you have to put another dog up there. I want them to develop all the potential they have to run anywhere in the team. That's why I've always had a small number of dogs. Eight is the most I've ever had. And I feel I can almost have enough time to train eight, but I don't know how people train 20 or 30 dogs and really get the full potential out of them. They but need they handlers. Definitely... Yeah. 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 <laughs> so oh, there you yeah. go. Yeah. So we have a uh, question, an interesting one from Mary in chat, and she wants to know, have you ever had any interactions between the dog and a larger mammal while out on a trail race or while camping? And sort of how did the dogs interact? And she gives the specific example of moose. Well, the dogs are curious about anything. They see the moose go by their dog yard in the summer and they want to chase them, but they're, they're in a fenced-in area and they can't chase them. But a few years ago, I was training on a trail where Kathy Frost and Lloyd Lowry were training their sprint teams and they were harnessing up when I went by when I took off. So I knew they were going to be passing me soon. So I pulled off on a side trail to make room for them. And usually my dogs would be patient and wait, but they just kept going. They didn't want to stop. And when we came out on the main trail, we went up and over a moose laying in the trail. And I thought I saw an eye open on this moose when I went over it. So I went past <laughs> the moose. I turned around and the moose stood up. And at that point, the snow got really deep and there was... Um, a channel of wolf tracks coming down through the woods and a lot of wolf urine. I think I had just interrupted an attack by the wolves. And when I turned around again, the, the moose was gone. Wow. That, I, didn't even, I didn't even think about wolves. That that personally terrifies me. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you, you're just so lucky if you even see a wolf track or see a wolf. Yeah. I think I'd be more afraid of seeing a moose with a calf than a than a pack of wolves for yeah. sure. A moose with yeah. a calf, I, I would definitely. Or another thing I'm afraid of are porcupines. A <laughs> whole team gets a nose or a paw full of porcupine quills. You just sit down and start pulling out quills. Yeah. Now, wasn't there another moose incident that you had many, many, many years ago where the moose actually, uh, where the dogs... Oh, yes. I got treed by a moose. Yeah. I was walking to where we parked our car, and I was walking on a narrow path through a big raspberry patch, and a moose crossed the trail. And I said to myself, oh, I wish that moose would turn around so I could see if it was a male or female. It was early June, just when they're calving. And at that point, the moose did turn around and came right down the trail at me. And I'm a big person, but I climbed a spruce tree about this big in diameter. You wouldn't think I could possibly climb it, but I did. And the mother moose just kept banging into the bottom of the tree. And when I was up there, of course, I had to pee like crazy, but I couldn't come down. The tree. <laughs> there. Well, from my viewpoint, I just looked where I could go from tree to tree and climb up again if I had to. Yeah. And John, my husband then, was working at the wood shop, and he said, I heard someone screaming, but you never scream. I didn't think it was you, but it was me. <laughs> and I talked to the fishing game moose biologist, and he said, most of the time they just do a fake charge. They come right at you, and then they turn off at the end. 
And that's what this moose was doing. And I was way, I, mean, I don't know if it was a near-death experience, but I was way up in the sky watching all this from up above. And just, I could see her coming in and then she'd veer off, come in and veer off. Yeah, so I understand that now that we've been in COVID, and I don't know what it's like in Norway, but in the United States, with all with many of the school closures, the moose are and other animals, not just moose, are now uh, sleeping at schools and walking and and just hanging out because they can. There's nobody there um, around the buildings. So I just wondered if that was what it was. Well, you don't have the moose over in Norway. Silly me. But other animals, you do. We have the, I think, for the elk. It's it's the moose, but it's just yeah. smaller. Uh, yeah, we have them, but uh, I think they're staying in the woods. I haven't seen them in a while. So, yeah. so okay. And not and, that, uh, uh-huh. They're scary here, but uh, I saw a lot of uh, moose when I was in Alaska, and they are a whole lot bigger than here in Norway. <laughs> it's crazy. <laughs> they they are large and they're they're fun animals, but they are very dangerous. And and Brad, you don't need the. I mean, the the moose with calves are very scary. Or elk or moose during the mating season, the rutting seasons. Those are scary times. We, my husband and I, have almost been accidentally trampled by animals that didn't know we were there. But we have more questions and then i want to go to mary and ask her to just share the story about the train uh so brad sure so mary ann would like to know is it sort of um the standard practice for the mushers to train their own dogs or is there a benefit for a musher working with dogs that maybe they haven't had as much a a personal impact on training so kina you're oh go ahead mary i think the dogs perform the best for the person that trains them and the person that feeds them. I think both of those are critical to the dogs. And I think if you have other people training them, you don't know what they're doing when you're not there. And it's confusing to the dog if people are giving them different signals. I think the more you can train your own dogs, the better myself. And most mushers can't afford to hire handlers to help train if they don't have a sponsorship. What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's true. Um, because you build, yeah, you you need to be with your dogs to to manage to compete the best in races and in general. So, um, but uh, a lot of those who has handlers have handlers to take care of the pups, and then they train the race team themselves. Uh, but I. Th- I think you need to be with the dogs the whole time if you want to uh, to be at the best in uh, in races. I agree. Yeah. And Brad, a couple more questions. Uh, Margaret and Leticia would both like to know what is the average length of a dog's career. Well, my I've been rushing dogs. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I have been mushing dogs that have been ten years old, uh, so it's uh, it's their it's like human. Some of them are really healthy when they're seventy, but the peak in a dog's career, I think, is six to seven years old, in my opinion. I agree with that too. Mine are freight dogs. Different. Are yours more sprint dogs or yours freight dogs? No, long distance. Yeah, um, mine live to about. 20- 12 or 13, but from about 10 on, they certainly can't keep up with a team and they're more cheerleaders. They come out when you're harnessing up and then they go back in their house and take a snooze till you come home. And they deserve a good retirement at that stage. An old 10 year old lead dog is very good to train puppies. Yeah. In the winter, I let one dog come in the house every night. I rotate it every night just because it lets me have more time with them and it's kind of a treat for them if it doesn't get too warm in the house. If it gets too warm, they want to go back outside. <laughs> They're very social. They like being with their their team for sure. So we also have several questions, including from Rob, about the the sled itself. What is the, the sled like maybe for someone who hasn't seen the race before or is familiar with this sort of equipment? 
Keena's smiling. <laughs> and I'll bet the sleds have been different because we have two different generations here. So uh, who can describe the sleds? I think that's a, a cool question because of the the generation. So Mary, why don't you start with your sled and then we'll we'll end that one with, with Keena. My, led, my sled was a basket sled. That meant the bottom of the sled was about eight inches above the snow level. And it just had two runners putting friction on the snow. And it was just made out of birch, the only hardwood we have here in Fairbanks. And it weighed about... 80 pounds, I think, empty. Wow. And back then we didn't have sled bags. We just had a big tarp that we put everything in the tarp and then tied it off like you'd tie a a pack on a horse. So if you tipped over, it wouldn't all fall out. Yeah. Kina? Uh, The sleds I've been using uh, has been like this light, um, I think it's carbon-made sleds. Where you can tilt, uh, where you can tilt them. So if you're going in steep hills, the the runners are uh, are holding a steady. I don't know the words, but um, they're really light. And uh, you also have a, a. It's a basket sled, which uh, Mary said, but uh, they're light and you can tilt them. So it's easy to steer around trees and much more easy than to to mush with uh, with the tree sleds. I've been doing that as well. But uh, the equipment is much more lighter, and then you have this um, the sled bags, which are much rooms for different things like batteries and uh, the dog booties on top. So they're built to be uh, to be more efficient when you stop to uh, on the race, like for example, to to uh, give food to the dogs. You have uh, different kinds of um, space to put the things you need in. And then you have this uh, case you can just sit down, like you have these sitting sleds. So, <laughs> so during my race, I could sit and I can run beside the sled. But when I got t- tired, I could sit down and maybe I fall asleep a little bit. Yeah. So, Kina, how much are sleds today? Huh? How much, yeah, how much are they costing today? So if any of us wanted, you know, if we move to a wintry area where we would need a dog sled team to help us with house chores the way Mary has needed through the years, what what is a sled costing today? I think if you're going to buy like this uh, regular tree, tree sleds, uh, they cost maybe 12000 12, But uh That's Kroner, right? Yeah, Norwegian Kroner. No, yeah. So, uh, so, but if you are going to uh, to get a race sled, um, you have to pay maybe thirty-two, thirty, twenty-five to thirty-two thousand Norwegian Kroners. So, if wow. someone has so an Alexa, home. sorry, if someone yeah. has a Alexa or something else where we can get a um, see what that costs in in American dollars, yeah. And go ahead, Kina. I didn't mean to cut you off. No, it was, that was all. <laughs> okay. And so now if, if Kina, if you are, I've seen pictures with you and your sled, do you own your own sled or do you rent them or? I uh, know I have a sled, but it's, uh, I have to fix it because it's broken. Uh, but um, when we are uh, building up our team, we're going to, to buy a new sled, but I want to uh, find someone a used sled because I think it's a lot of money to, to use a whole month payment to, to buy a sled. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. I have, a, I have a tip that would save you some money. Here in Fairbanks, some of the young kids that are interested in sledding, they go to the hockey games, and hockey sticks are made out of hardwood, ash, and if they break yeah. them, they put them in a wastebasket and the kids pound them together and make real clunky sleds but they're free (laughs) (laughs) that's great i love that i love that recycled uh, recycled sled that's awesome (laughs) all right brad so just we just have time for a couple more questions i'm sorry mary am i cutting you off there no that's okay i'm sorry i talk too much i know i do (laughs) we love to hear your stories and and we are going to share your story about how you got started because it's it's such an incredible story, especially coming out of the 1970s for something as daring and bold as what 
you did. So, Brad, do we have any more questions that we need to get to the ladies here? So I think you mentioned a couple of the technical terms for the positions of the dogs in a race as they're lined up on a sled. So Margaret would like to know more about the details of that sort of organization. Mary, you can start. Yeah, well, I'll start with the lead dog. They're the most important. You're going to go wherever that lead dog goes. So your life is in their paws, I like to say. And then the, you can have a single lead or you can have a double lead. If you have a double lead, it's a good place to train a young dog. And you put a neckline between their collars. So when you give the commands, all vocal commands, if I say G, the lead dog turns to the right on the corner. You don't want to go through the deep snow. You want to stay on the trails and go around the corners. If I want to turn left, I tell them haw. When I want them to stop, I say whoa. And the tone of your voice is as important as what you're saying. I don't want to disappoint anyone but I've never heard anyone say mush. Yeah. <laughs> to go ahead. Nobody says it anymore. Today, most people use the word hike as a command to go. And I don't even say hike all the time. I just go, I say, okay, let's go. And okay is a dangerous thing because if you're giving someone a ride, you won't believe how often they'll say okay. And the dogs don't care who they hear say it. They take off when they hear it. And sometimes you're just putting your hat on and you just grab the sled and drag along as long as you can hang on. And when you can't hang on any longer, <laughs> you let go and there go your dogs. If they're chasing an animal, that's when it happens the most. If it's a squirrel or a rabbit, their instincts take more priority than your commands. And you're just they're going to go until they can't see it or can't smell it anymore. Then sometimes they'll just lay down and let you catch up with them. Another thing I've taught my dogs was, most young mushers don't teach anymore, is the command, come haw. That means go to the left haw and make a U-turn and come back and get me. And that comes in. That's saved my life several times. And I've been grateful for dogs that'll do that. Mickey and Julie Collins that live out on Lake Minchumina, they fish for uh, fish through the ice in the wintertime. And one time, one of the twins went through the ice and she called her dog back and then she hung onto the dog's tail and the dog pulled her out of the water and saved her life. So they're they're worth their weight in gold. And, and a good lead dog is the best thing you can have. Yeah. And then the, the ones behind the lead dogs, we call them um, um, <laughs> um, point, not point dogs, but swing dogs, because they help swing the team around corners. Then all the dogs in the middle of the team are, are just team dogs. They just have to go straight ahead following the lead dog. And then the two dogs right in front of the sled are called wheel dogs. And their job is really important. If you're on a curvy trail through the woods, those wheel dogs have to pull the front of the sled way out around the tree so you don't bang into the tree. Oh, gosh. And yeah, and they'll, they'll learn that. First time they bang into the tree, they'll learn not to do that again. Yeah. Hopefully. Kina? And that's... Sorry, yeah, keep going, you, Mary. No, what do you call your dogs? No, it's it's the same. Uh, it's the lead dog, and then uh, the dogs uh, next uh, behind the lead dogs, we call them point, and then team dogs, and then wheel dogs. Uh, oh, my God. I just had my dogs, like, doing some crazy things downstairs. <laughs> well, that's reality. That is reality. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. live with your dogs. Uh, and... but, uh, but, Mary, do you... Um, because um, when I started to mush, uh, I learned that you need to put the biggest dogs uh, as the wheel dogs because they are uh, are strongest. But uh, what I have learned is that uh, the biggest dogs uh, get a lot of pressure from going in the back from from the from the sled. So I like to to put the bigger dogs like in the middle of the team and then the smaller smaller dogs but uh, are strong but smaller in height and, and weight what do you do yeah the angle of the tug line that connects the dog to the main toe line is steeper for the dogs in back because it's a shorter distance and there is more pressure on their back and they're banging all the time to get the team started i found that it, it injures their back more often than it hmm. does for dogs that aren't in wheel that's another reason why i switch them around all the time so nobody gets yeah. stuck in wheel all the time. 
Yeah, yeah it is. such yeah. humane actions, and I'm so thrilled about that. And, and of course, the two of you have talked about that through the years for sure. And I saw uh, Australia go across my screen, so I think there were, are some listeners down in Australia who are up now. It's early in Australia. Uh, so what, what does Australia have to say? So Mendit from Australia is asking, is there a, uh, a tool library uh, that maybe if someone in a community wants to learn how to practice, how to use sled dogs, how might they be able to do, to do that if there's some sort of a community aspect of learning? Oh, and that's so Australia, of course, they're not going to have the sleds. So they're not needing a sled, right? Is that right? What? So if you're in Australia and there's not much snow, what might you use otherwise sort of that accomplishes the same goal? Uh, I'm, I think that you can, you can uh, start with dog mushering with only one dog. You can take, uh, take them out uh, on a bike or running. Uh, just put, put the harness on and, and try to learn them how to, to work in the harness. So it's, it's really popular in Europe with bike during this, um, what you call it in, uh, yeah, not bikes, but like this, you're standing on with two wheels and uh, steering. Like a scooter? Uh, yeah, like a scooter. So you can go, if you have, don't have snow, you can do it on a scooter or, or with your bike, but it's essential that you have a dog that is uh, willing to pull and uh, knows how to go straight forward. So maybe you should start with uh, just running with your dog and then try to, when you come to a cross in the road, you you try to, if you say left, and then you run to the left and the dog will follow you. So start uh, with doing that. Maybe. <laughs> Something yeah. I wish I would remember to say right in the beginning, every dog musher you talk to has a different way of doing things. There isn't any yeah. one way that's the perfect way to do it. We all work out a relationship that works between ourselves and our dogs. And some, you can make up your own words. You could teach them north and south instead of G and Ha. It wouldn't always work, but it would sound real impressive. But um, <laughs> you just have to do what works for your team. Yeah. And I think Marianne just said, a go-kart with dogs. <laughs> yeah. so. People use four-wheel motorcycles here in the fall. Yeah. They usually turn the motor off unless they're going up a hill. But they'll help the dogs on the hills. And some people hate when the snow comes because when they're using a four-wheeler, they can drink coffee while they're running their dogs or they'll hook them up to a front of a pickup truck. I've never done that. I had a, a VW bug that we took all the motor out of it so it was light. But it was like Mr. Froggy and the toad in the, in the front, whatever that children's story is. It, you'd go downhill really fast and then you'd turn around and come home and you'd hardly get home because that thing was really heavy to haul back <laughs> and to turn around. Yeah, but, so... Um... I know that we're getting a little. Oops. No, I'm you're fine. Yeah. <laughs> we're just. I noticed the time we're getting. It. It. It's flying by because people, you listeners, have been so awesome with your questions, and I thank you so much for that. We're not done because Mary and Kina both have a quick story to share. And Mary, so one of the things that I have seen going flying on my screen as it goes by are a lot of comments about people saying that they love the fact that we're doing this today and that it's a conversation of storytelling. And I think that's fabulous. So thank you for those comments. And so Mary, if you could uh, storytell how you ended up getting your first dog sled team. Uh, and I you don't have, yeah, and I know it's long on the podcast, so those of you who want to hear the whole story, but she'll condense it here. I'll tell it real quickly. I wanted to live out in the wilderness somewhere because it's such beautiful country, and I wanted to see what I could learn from living in the winter out there. And I found a little cabin on the railroad tracks where the conductor of the train told me about a little cabin that had been abandoned. So I moved in in August or September, and in October... Some friends from Fairbanks came down and they had run a dog team in their previous life. And they went back to Fairbanks and sent three dogs down in the next train. So the engineer blows the whistle, the baggage car opens up, out come the three dogs. There's a little letter on this 
on the sled that tells me everything I need to know about running dogs. Mainly it said, put him in the front of the sled and go. That was all I had to do. <laughs> they got in a big fight right away. And I didn't, I was all by myself. I was crying and screaming and I turned them all loose and they went down the trail to the cabin. Then I had to haul all the dog food from the train in that old sled to the cabin. And as soon as I opened up a bag of dog food, they were right there. And I just worked with a female lead dog the first week. Then I added one of the big red dogs. And then finally I added the third big red dog. And then we could go anywhere we wanted to. And it was wonderful. But just it, put them in front of the sled. If you're a new musher or someone wanting to get into mushing, I always recommend finding the closest neighbor of yours that has a dog team and go over and volunteer to help do the cleanup and help do the chores. And most mushers, I think, would in turn help you learn how to how to um, run dogs. It is an expensive sport, so I don't recommend just going out and buying everything. Try it out with somebody else's dogs. And it's expensive in money, but it's more expensive in time if you're going to do, do a good job of it. The dogs I'd love to it. try it. I would just love to try it, but I think I'd, I'd be just, oh, those dogs. So what an interesting way to get started, Mary, is the fact that you were living in the cabin and it was so difficult because you didn't have a team. And then these dogs show up with just those simple words, put the dogs in front of the sled and they'll know what to do. So you started your career, but it was incredible in 1970. Well, that would have been in 1973 when you did that, or even 72 earlier, 69, I think you said that what took a the lot dogs of taught me more than I taught the dogs for sure. Well, you know, and when you look back in that era, uh, I, I commend you for being strong as a woman to go and do this and learn it and then enter the Iditarod sled, the Iditarod trail sled dog race with very little experience. And you came in 22nd. And I just say, what an inspiration, absolute inspiration. And Kina, okay. I, I know um, I, when I had you on the show, I, and I, you probably have long sleeves on, but your, your tattoo and what you, oh, you, you have it ready to show. I just, it I don't is, know how to... <laughs> so it's what you yeah. say about it. That is so inspiring. It's not the tat, the it's so what she has, in fact, Kina explain the tattoo and the, and then we'll do the words. Yeah, it's uh, it's just it's such a eight team of, uh, of dogs and a person on the sled, so it's a dog team. And uh, underneath it says in Norwegian, "Your drømmen," which means uh, "follow your dream" or "do your dream." Um, that quote uh, I started in this. Uh, here in Norway, we have these schools. Uh, outdoor schools uh, that have dog marching as a as a line wow. that you can choose to to go on. So I started in this uh, after uh, after like high school. I didn't know what to do, and a friend of mine said, "Kina, why don't you find a, a school that has uh, like uh, things that you can do with dogs?" Or because I love dogs, so I applied on this school and I got in, and then I started in um, this dog marching class. So, and that year, it was in 2005, and that year, Robert Surly, a famous Norwegian mercer, won the Iditarod Sledder race for the second time. So, he as well was a big uh, inspiration for me, and we also got to meet him, so, and he's a great, great, great mercer. So, that was how it started for me. I was a student at the school, and the second year after, I was working at the school, because I was picked out to be... Uh, the teacher's trainee and to, to help the teacher to train up new students in the dog yard. So I got my first uh, sled dog uh, in 2005 and that was how it started. And when I heard about uh, Robert Surly, I said, or the year when I was started, we heard about Robert Surly and that you could, um, you can apply to be a second year student. And the first day I told my mom and dad that I'm going to be here in two years because the next year I'm the next year I'm working here, and uh, I also told uh, my friends that the one year I'm going to Alaska to see the Iditarod Sledder Race. Yeah, and <laughs> that's you, how it started. It and you know you followed your dream, and I I I really love 
I just love, I love this podcast because people are so positive about what they do and they do follow your dreams. And um, we just have to close that. Thanks. And people do follow their dreams. And uh, that is something that just really makes the world go round when we have the inspiration from people like Mary Shields, Kina Linus-Skor of Norway, and Brad here, who has is learning this on, on uh, as being a co-host. And all of you who are out there sending in these questions and comments, and it, it's going by so fast, I'm trying to read them all, but I, I love it. I just so love it. And I agree with Marianne. Marianne said that I could never do a dog sled because I'd be out there petting the dogs the whole time and uh, not doing any work and I'm losing my earphone. <laughs> so uh, anyway, so Brad, are there any questions that are just sitting there that you really, really think that we need to have out right now? before we get to our closing remarks. I think the the main question that came through, several people have said that Mary should write books and tell her story. Oh. And so I think it's important to just talk about sort of how you've both told your story so far, including the books that Mary has written. I think this would be a good time to just plug those. Yeah. So Thank Mary, you. I Mary, I told you I would have the books, so I'll hold them up and you can tell about them. Okay. Uh, when we come back from these dog sled trips in the spring, we were broke because we'd spent all our money on dog food. So I started writing articles for magazines. And then I get letters from people asking me questions. So I like to answer letters, but I couldn't get to them all. So I wrote a book just explaining how we did things. And that's the dog trails. It's not a, a guidebook for where the trails are. It's just adventures of dogs. It's really easy reading. It is. And then I... And might I add, Mary, that PBS in United States uh, did a documentary on you and yeah. your life, which I think was awesome. And then, of course, your children's books, which are so amazing. Yeah, there to try to share something I love with kids. And I hope this kind of dog mushing can go on forever because we're all creatures of this earth and getting out in the winter and seeing what it's all about really broadens your education and your love for the planet we live on. And we need some love right now for that planet because we've done a lot of injuries. Small Wonders is kind of a journal of living out of the cabin. Every chapter is a different month. And I tell people it take a whole year to read it. Then you can come <laughs> yeah. a month in Fairbanks and a month in Oslo or someplace. And this is the book we based our lesson plan on that we yeah. wrote together many years ago. Yeah. And if Time there are any teachers good. there, you might have done the work with me when we were doing the dog sled trail race. So it's a wonderful earth to live on. And when you have a pack of little puppies that grow into these big, lovable, hardworking dogs to spend your life with, uh, it's a wonderful life. And I feel very grateful to be privilege to live my life this way and for more of you that can do it go do it because it's a wonderful thing to experience and mary those are wonderful words and i i want to i know that uh, before this and i saw a question go by and i, I just want to go back to the iditarod and i know people are wanting to probably go because it's going to be an hour we start a little bit late but people want to know how you eat what you eat when you're out on the dog sled race when you were out on the Iditarod. Yeah. Um, I, since that was my first race, I didn't really have much experience. I just took more of the same stuff I took on camping trips, stuff I could eat without having to cook it, cheese and peanut butter and stuff I wouldn't get my hands all sticky and messy with. And then back then, when we came to a checkpoint, people could invite you into their home to have dinner with them. And they did. And that was one of the nicest parts about the race, meeting the cultural uh, differences people along the trail. Now they can't do that because if you went the second year, the people that met you the first year would want you to come back the second year and they'd have a steak dinner ready for you. And if someone coming on the race the first year, they'd be out in the cold eating a frozen peanut butter sandwich while you'd be uh, eating good warm food. So they 
they have to make the rules fair to everybody. So everybody eats their own food now, or that's the rule. I don't know if they do it, but I think they do. But just easy food, high protein, high fat. You're out in the cold and you and the dogs both need a lot of fat to stay comfortable. Yes. Unfortunately, it stays with you. I'm looking yeah. at you lose, you lose about 10 pounds in a thousand mile race. I'm looking for about a 10,000 mile race. Something. No. <laughs> oh, Mary. Oh, you do have the humor too. So, and so we, we will close, but before we do all, I, I'm wearing my shirt. Yay. The shirt's oh, probably backwards on there, but uh, so we will close with your inspiring words, whatever you two would like to share. Uh, you both have been inspiring, but we want to close with um, inspiring words. So, Kina, why don't you start first? Uh, I think when now during the COVID situation, uh, I think um, if you're struggling, uh, just go outside. You don't need to, to get started with dog mashing. Just go outside and find, try to find the joy about being out in the nature because uh, if you don't, if you're not comfortable with the staying overnight, just start with being outside uh, for some hours and listening. Go inside you and uh, let all the the good smells and uh, the sound of birds and and just try to stay and be there right now. I think it will do so much good for for everyone. Try to to be in love with the nature. Oh, those are beautiful words. And I love nature and I hope everybody does get the chance to go out. Mary and and, uh, and Kina, yes. thank you again in Norway. And Mary, your inspiring words. Yes, I feel like I should pay homage to Susan Butcher, who is the, has been the biggest long distance racer ever for women. And on my tour one day, a lady gave me a t-shirt they made in her honor after she had won it two times. They had to make a new t-shirt when she had won it four times. Can you see this t-shirt? Yes. It says Alaska where men are men and women win the Iditarod again <laughs> and again. And the last yeah. one said four times. Oh, that's it. great. <laughs> I think, wasn't it Susan Butcher that came to you after you completed the Iditarod sled, the Iditarod trail sled dog race in 1974 to ask you about it? Well, you inspired her. Look at that. Yeah. She's way beyond me and always will be, but she did want to know what it was like. And then she ran it, I think, 20 times and won it four times. She's a real champ. She was dedicated and focused to that race like nothing you ever saw. When she raced, she was right there all the time and worked really hard and deserves all the credit she gets. Oh, absolutely. But you deserve the credit for inspiring people. Yeah. Absolutely, Mary. And, and I and I know that that has to be hard to carry that with you every day of your life, knowing that you are the first woman to have done something. Uh, well, it's an honor to think it might inspire somebody. It is a good life. And I recommend people, just like Keenan said, getting out in nature. That's where we evolved and that's where we belong. And that's where the answers are going to come to solve our problems, I think. And the dogs will get us there. Oh, beautiful words. Both ladies. Uh, so wonderful to have you here on Your Positive Imprint. So wonderful. And Brad, do you have any final words you'd like to share? What was it like yeah. being tech guy and co-host? <laughs> this was so much fun. I uh, I was really uh, drawn to, Mary, your quote that you, you said on the podcast about sometimes a person needs a story more than a loaf of bread. And I just want to say that these stories have been great and I really enjoyed listening to you meeting you both. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Brad, that's wonderful. I'm so glad you brought that up. That's wonderful. So my last question to my listeners is, how did Facebook work out? Would you like to do Facebook or YouTube for these live broadcasts? If you can just put in FB or YT, and that'll kind of help me out for getting a little survey <laughs> going as to what your preferred format is to you out Once there. Once I got your email, everything was easy. I just 
clicked on the code and it was fine. Well, that was for you because you are on the show. So this oh. is for the people that are listening and watching. So uh, Mary's not on Facebook, so she does not know what um, the Facebook is. The Facebook, I shouldn't even say the, what Facebook is. <laughs> I know what it is, but I don't have you, time to look at it. No, you wouldn't have time. You are so busy, Mary, with your tours uh, of bringing people together yeah. and sharing your storytelling, which is... I can't do as much as I used to. I need, I'm 76 years old and I had to have my leg amputated a few years ago because my ankle bones wore out. So I can't do what I used to do, but I'm, I have the memories and I'm grateful I had a chance to live that life when I did. I am too, Mary. And so is Kina, because I can tell you, Kina was so excited when she was at the, let me see if I can pronounce it, Flipstopper, Flipstopper. How do you pronounce it, Kina? The Norway race. Yeah, I was way off. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so with that race, and she, you know, immediately sent me an email, and she sent me a picture, which I, and this was, you know, over a year ago, and she was excited about that. And so your inspiration is worldwide, and and Kina is inspiring people of her generation. So it, it just continues and it's it is wonderful it really is and the storytelling i'm so glad that my listeners mentioned storytelling because that really is wonderful to have the two of you here share both of your stories of your dog training and uh, your dreams and mary uh, your life as being the first woman to complete the iditarod trail sled dog race well keenan i'll be cheering for you when you come on the iditarod if I can do anything when you're in Alaska, just give me a call. Oh, I will. If, if I get there. Kina, you will. There. You will. And I want to meet Maybe you in person. Next yes, please come by. Oh, Mary, yeah, that I want is to so travel. nice. I want to travel to Alaska with or without dogs. So, uh, so if I yeah. uh, go there, I will contact you. You're welcome either way. Any, any of your listeners that are interested, come by and meet the dogs themselves they deserve the real chance to tell their story oh it is fun to meet the dogs so listeners that is an opportunity mary does do tours in her home and she invites you to go and and visit her dogs pet the dogs mary you started those tours but i i think your website is down now yeah i didn't do them because of the virus right yesterday was the first one i've done this summer are you so listeners if you're going to be traveling to Alaska you can contact me and I will get you in touch with Mary she is awesome she's approachable she's fun she's funny and she'll tell you jokes and if you're traveling to Norway Kina would be glad to show you around so yeah, yeah this has just been fun so thank you so much so Brad are people liking Facebook yeah it looks like a lot of people prefer Facebook and it seemed to have worked well today so that was good okay well, listeners, I think we're going to be closing out unless we have any final last words from Kina or Mary. Happy trails. Happy trails. <laughs> Great words. Everybody, thank you so much for joining Mary Shields, Kina Linescore, Brad Cedillo, and me, your host of Your Positive Imprint. Have a wonderful, 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 wonderful week, wonderful day, and... Um, wonderful life. Yes, wonderful life. Your positive imprint. What's your PI?